Hey everyone, it's Caleb. Thanks so much for listening uh, to the podcast today and for deciding to join me for a few minutes today. Today, I have, uh, I'm super excited about this episode today. Today, I am talking with Danielle Strickland, who is one of my favorite people to learn from. And she has recently come out with a new book called Better Together how women and men can heal the divide and work together to transform the future. And I talk with her about that book. I talk with her about um, really how, I mean, and even even in a broader respect of how, how to lead and how to live in a time of uncertainty, in a time of whenever you don't know what to do. And that includes um, the, the gender equality and stepping in, into that world and, and learning what to do and how we can work together for that. And even, even how that applies to the, to the current crisis of what we're going through right now with the COVID-19 pandemic as well. And just super excited to bring this conversation to you. And I'm going to get to that in just a second. But before we do that, I want to remind you that the music that you're listening to is brought to you by my good friend, Sam Massey. If you have any needs, for any audio or video stuff, he is the person to go to for any of that stuff as well. Also, uh, make sure that you are subscribing to the podcast. If you're on Spotify, which is the platform that I use, make sure that you're following. and You'll never miss an episode, especially with right now, with us just having more time. I'm trying to get you uh, some more episodes throughout the week. And the best way to make sure that you don't miss an episode is by subscribing and by following now, as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Danielle Strickland, and here is my conversation with her. Well, Danielle, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Oh, it's so great to be on this podcast. Thanks so much, Caleb. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and you've recently released this book called Better Together. And what I'm just interested in it um, for my own pure pure curiosity as well, because I know just talking with authors and even um, just some of the stuff that I've worked on is that whenever it comes to a book, there's usually like a, an event or a series of events that have led the author to to wanting to write this book. And so I'm just curious, like, what was the, the inciting incident or the inciting incidents that led you to want to write this book better together? Well, really, it was being asked to speak at uh, the Global Leadership uh, Summit, uh, which is a big leadership conference in evangelical uh, Willow Creek Church. And it was right after Bill Hybels had been accused of a lot of uh, behavior, sexual harassment stuff over the years. 
And it was in the you know throes of the Me Too movement as well. But this was, was a really big one and there was a lot of tension around it. And, um, and so they asked me to come speak on men and women working together, sort of like, let's just have a conversation about that because the fear was so intense. And so I really had to like pray about it and research it and really, you know, in, in that situation, you really want to get it as right as you possibly can. And that decision to do that, as well as like preparing for that was so filled with conflict and tension. People calling me saying I couldn't possibly do it. Like it would be a, a weird endorsement of a misogynistic practices. And, but I was convinced that God has and wants to speak right in the middle of those chaotic and fearful times. I don't think that uh, we have the luxury as leaders in the culture in which we live to just sort of like sidestep really hard and difficult issues. I think we have to actually address them. So uh, upon doing the preparation for even that talk, I had 27 minutes to talk about like the thing. Uh, and I just realized there's so much more that we need to talk about. And this issue specifically around men and women in our relationship needs to be figured out for the next generation and for this generation. And that there's so much we could do and that now might be a really good time to do it. Yeah, I, I remember I was actually at that some, I wasn't in the audience, but I was one of the broadcast sites and seeing it and just listening. It was really just the, just the whole conference was um, just incredibly powerful. And of course, with your moment um, as well, but there was just so many different things. Talk, talk about why it's so important that we don't ignore those types of conversations whenever it comes to issues that are hard, because it is the tendency to just want to ignore it or to sidestep it. Yeah. I mean, we're petrified of uh, things we can't control. And I think, you know, the, the season in which we're living in right now in the world where everybody's in COVID-19, I mean, here we are we're realizing sort of our worst fears in so many ways. And one of the worst fears that we have as people, just as humans, is that we're out of control. We don't have any control. And, uh, and it's true. We don't have any control in some respects. And I think whenever an issue like the Me Too movement, which you know, has hit so, I mean, it's not like the Me Too movement created the problem. The Me Too movement exposed a problem of generations and generations and generations of women who have lived with the reality of inequity and abuse and harassment and sexual uh, assault. And so it really is like when uh, Exodus, the Bible talks about God hearing the cry and God moves when he hears the cry of his people. And I really feel like, you know, what it was 19 million women that said me too on Twitter, you know, within 40 days or something once this, and it was just like, I felt like even as a woman, I felt like the cry was being released finally, just like the bottle was being take the cork out of the bottle, you know, Pandora's box opened. And, you know, we're so used to just sort of stuffing that stuff back in because we want the illusion of control and we're scared of chaos and we're scared of what we don't know what to do. But I think that God actually is the God that creates out of chaos, that he's not afraid, that he hears the cry and he comes close. And so when moments like this happen in culture, your natural response is to kind of like, ah, back it up, don't talk about it, put it back in the bottle. But I think God's invitation in it is to say what's in there. Like, what do we need to talk about? What do we need to address? Even if all we have to say is we don't really know, we just know we've got to figure something out uh, to say something and to move towards, even though it feels like chaos, but to move towards uh, some sort of answer, divine answer. So this, I feel like it's a moment in culture 
uh, where this is the moment God wants to address this and deal with it and maybe even overthrow the Pharaoh of oppression against uh, women and against the relationships between women and men. Yeah. And, and I want to get to uh, some of some of the stuff in the book, but I don't want to move past this. Uh, what you were talking about of, of facing situations to where we don't have control like whether it be what you were talking about, even stepping into like the GLS and speaking there, or even just just other stuff, as you know, at the, at the time that we're recording, like COVID or nineteen is happening as well. What what have you learned about stepping into situations to where where you don't have control, and just kind of like what what our where we can find like our, what our role is in situations that we don't have control. Yeah, I think um, the, what we lose is not control. We lose the illusion that we were ever in control, just number one. So that's a Barbara Brown Taylor quote. You know, we've, we haven't yeah. lost control. We've just lost the illusion that we had control. Uh, so that's helpful to remind ourselves. And I think that, um, you know, it's a really fascinating uh, blueprint that I take out of the book of Genesis where God hovers, you know, the, the, the creation account says that the spirit of God is hovering over the chaos and then from that place of the chaos, he's, uh, or she, the spirit of God is beginning to birth because the image there is of a mother bird birthing. So that's why I, I say she or here, whatever, but, um, but God is hovering over that chaos place and then creating life. And so we're so petrified of chaos, you know, and we've been taught that chaos is the enemy. But in my uh, experience of even looking at the way God creates new, beautiful movement and freedom, uh, this idea that God is constantly hovering over those places of chaos to bring new life and new creation. So in, in one respect, one of the things that I've learned to practice and train myself in, which is maybe why I could step into that moment a little bit easier than some others, is that I see chaos as a starting place, not an ending place. And a, a starting place that if we're willing to look for where the spirit of God is hovering, we'll be able to start seeing the signs of new creation, which of course in the Genesis account is like light. We'll start seeing light. So I see the Me Too movement as light. Whoa, revelations happening here. There's something going on that needs to be addressed. And then of course, God goes on and, and does the skies and he does life, new life, and he does like, and this sustainable idea of a new creation. So I just, I feel like when you feel like you're losing control and it's chaos related, which again, right now in this place, we're recording this in a place where we're all feeling this, instead of reverting and hiding and just like trying to like pass the time and thinking like, oh no, everything's, you know, terrible. Look for where the spirit of God is hovering because that is always where God does his new creation work. Yeah. And then kind of getting back to the book, one of the concepts that you write about that I absolutely love in it is that in order to, for change to take place, we need to keep our focus on the future and toward what, what could be. What helps you focus on the future when it's so tempting for for all of us just to focus on what's happening around us and even what's been done to us or what's happened in the past. Yeah, this um, technique really is not new. It's old. So if you've ever read Walter Brueggemann's classic prophetic imagination, I mean, he says that the whole role of the church, like the whole thing, the whole role of the church is to show people uh, the future is to say, this is what it's supposed to look like when God's kingdom is uh, reigning and ruling. And so it's this imagination, this prophetic imagination to paint the possibilities of a future that's better, that's new, that's good, that's kingdom-based. 
And um, Samuel Watt is this Palestinian activist that I, I'm privileged to know. And he's had so much trouble trying to create momentum and a movement of peacemaking in the Middle East, as you can imagine. Uh, and in the book, I kind of poke fun of like, what's the harder thing, men and women or the Middle East, uh, peace in the Middle East. It's kind of like up there in terms of like hardness. And, uh, and he said that he figured out this, he found this uh, nonlinear theology, he calls it, where he sits down. He said, what happens traditionally is we look to the past and we, we try to find momentum from the past. And he said, the farther they look in the past in the Middle East, the more the lack of momentum happens, like the more offenses they find. It's like this burial ground of offense. And, uh, and what he did was he stopped doing that. And he would just very simply, this is a really simplified version of what he does, but he gathers people and to begin some movement together towards a peacemaking, towards a better life. He has them imagine the end of their life. And what they would picture as the best case scenario at the end of their life, like what they're hoping for the most, what they're desiring for the most. And everyone begins to share this picture that they have at the end of their life. And as they begin to share, they all realize that they actually have the same picture, that they want their kids to live in peace, that they want there to be enough, you know, that they want there to be peace and that they want to live like a, a good life and uh, contributing to the, the betterment of the world. And as they realize that, they're like, whoa, wait a minute, we've never had more in common because actually the thing we hold the most in common is this better world that we're all wanting to do together. And then he says they work, them, they work their way backwards to where they are now to this better place. And this is the book of Revelation. I mean, this is the early church. I mean, this is what the Bible is. This is what God's inviting the church to do all the time is what is the world? that we are praying, you know, that God taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is not like, what will it look like when we're all gone and in heaven, but what does it look like right now? And at the end of our lives, what kind of a world do we want to pass on to our children? And how do we want to see, and I've never met a dad or a mom, a parent who does not desire things to change in terms of how women and men relate to each other when it comes to their kids. So if we can kind of start with the future, what kind of a world do we want? I don't want a world where one in three women are expecting to be sexually assaulted or harassed in her lifetime. I don't want that world. I want a world where women can go to their car at the end of a night or at the end of the movie without putting keys in between their fingers, as all of us have been taught in case we're assaulted on our way home. Um, you know, that, that world of fear and uh, assault and like regular inequity. I don't want a world where, you know, there are more men named John who run companies in America than women put together. You know, I don't want that world. I want a world of equity and equality. I want a world where little girls can dream of their future and not think that there's any uh, weirdness in dreaming big and hoping for the best. And I'm also dreaming of a world for my boys. So I have three boys and a beautiful husband. And so it's been wonderful for me to just really have a look at what my desired outcome is for my, my own boys to grow up as men who contribute to a better world and uh, to make things better. So it's that starting with the future. And that's how we do it in the book is I say, okay, this thing, if we're going to look backwards when, when it comes to men and women, we're going to be in trouble. We're just going to find more and more offense because this has been a terrible, terrible journey. And I call this wound between men and women, almost the original wound. So the first thing that broke after our relationship with God broke in the Genesis story, the first thing after the relationship with God was the relationship between each other. And so we're looking at like this deep, deep, deep wound in the human experience. And so we've got to look 
uh, forward. Uh, we got to look forward. And this isn't new, you know, um, and also this is really great, even in the time in which we're recording this in terms of any crisis. Uh, John on the island of Patmos, you know, he's like, I don't know what, I'm out of control. I'm on lockdown. I don't know what to do. And, uh, and Jesus says to him, oh, come on up here. Come on up here. I want to show you something. And what he shows him is not just some sort of like apocalyptic future, which we kind of viewed Revelation as. What he just shows him is the divine view of things like God's view of things from the future, you know, from where things are right and good and holy and true. And that somehow gives him momentum. And then he sends these letters to the churches and it gives them momentum to actually fight for what is inevitable when it comes to the kingdom coming. What, what helps you remember that future whenever you're at your lowest? Yeah, I share in the book a time where I drove home from yet one more. And so I've spent 25 years of my life trying to get women out of sexual exploitation and, uh, and stop human trafficking. And so it's been a nonstop life of hearing a lot of terrible things that men have done. And in my experience, you know, this has been so painful, but just even to see like all the kinds of men, you know, teachers and policemen and parents and fathers just constantly driving steadily into inner cities and sexually exploiting more and more and more women and girls. And so this has really been bad news for me in so many ways. I mean, it's breaking my, it's breaking my heart. And I think God gave me a house full of men uh, to actually compensate for the bad news that I would experience from all these different, I mean, I just, and I was driving home from this one experience where I was talking to this woman who just was so violated and abused by so many men. And I was driving home. And it was the first time I could really relate to the psalmist and the precatory psalms where he just like basically gets a little violent in his prayers. Like, I just wish I could, you know, smash your head against a rock. And you just think like, how is that in the Bible? And I remember driving home going, oh, I know how that's in the Bible. You know, I'm so mad right now. Just so mad. And I remember thinking to myself, like, are there any good men left in the world? And I, I, I went to the front door of my house and I opened the door and my little four-year-old at the time, Moses, my youngest son, met me with this big smile and wrapped his arms around me and loved me. This four-year-old little boy. And then that night I was tucking him in and we have this thing we do every night where I say, Moses, you know, who made you? And Moses looks at me and he says, oh, God made me, mom. And I say, he sure did, honey. And how did he make you? And Moses says, oh, he made me good. And I say, yeah, he made you fearfully and he made you wonderfully and he made you good. Like he, he made you. Uh, and then I shut the door and I just remember thinking to myself, did he? Like, did God make him good? And is, is my son destined somehow in some cosmic fatalistic setup to be bad? Like, are all men on this trajectory of badness? Like, are all men, like, predetermined to be jerks and harassers and we're just going to do the best we can? Or did God make men to be good and if that's the case how do we get there and how do we get back there and how do we hang on to that so that was one of probably the darkest moments i've had in terms of my own despair around the future of male and female relationships and what helped me was my own son and imagining his future and what i desire for him and dream for him and then realizing that that's how god views every man uh, not through the lens of fear and disappointment and like all this tragedy, but through the lens of possibility and goodness and why they were created uh, and the lens of, you know, it views every woman that way too. So um, somehow tapping into that has really been therapeutic and helpful to me. Yeah. Yep. 
and and you and you continue writing about like I absolutely absolutely love just the the structure of the book too and how you put everything together and how really at the beginning of the book or towards the beginning of the book that you you list out all of these benefits that men and women working together like that surprise for everybody like everybody does better whenever men and women work together uh and and the family and and the workplace even in the political system and, and just all of these things and yet there just seems to be like still such a strong resistance to men and women like working together and then especially whenever you throw like the church like the church into there like especially there like where where does this resistance where does it come from yeah i'm gonna say it comes from fear you know all oppression by the way comes from fear fear is the great enemy um Fear is the enemy of love, right? Fear is the enemy of um, mutuality. Like fear is a distorting influence in our life. Like fear is actually the ramifications of sin. We would say theologically, like sin is not just, so we've been taught that sin is something that we do, but it's also a way that we think. It's a permeating presence in our life where fear becomes self-preservation. Fear becomes suspect and uh and so fear, I think, is the greatest enemy, particularly around relationships and specifically around relationships between women and men. Now, this is ironic. And I've got to say, like, this is this has been extremely disappointing and then also extremely hopeful because the church's job is to reflect the kingdom to the world. And so the fact that we're behind on this conversation is so frustrating to me on so many levels. And what happens is when we start justifying our fear with spiritual language, you know, with theology, like with, then it kind of cements our fear as good. And as soon as that happens, we're all in big, big trouble. So um, I think, and I think that's why I also saw that the church too movement, you know, like, so the Me Too movement was like, we, we had a moment where we were like, oh yeah, things are bad out there. And, and then all of a sudden church leader after church leader after church, and we were like, ah, things are bad in here we could no longer deny that this was not a problem happening outside of us this is a problem happening inside and i think that was the invitation for the church to say whoa hang on a second here we've got some things wrong and i would say the one thing that we have wrong and i think there's a whole bunch of things we could do better and that's my whole idea of this book is not just to call out the wrong but to try to offer some opportunities to get better because i actually think when people really stop and think about it they want things to be better for their children for their generation for their churches for their communities for the world and i also think that the church holds an answer that the world desperately needs right now in terms of how relationships can be healed and move forward but until we're willing to really have a good look uh, at the fear that we we get paralyzed in and even the idea like even talking about this issue from church from the platform or uh, dealing with this issue theologically or even identifying areas in our own lives where we've been like oh yeah i believe that for so long you know uh that's the work that needs to be done because we have to expose the fear if we're going to confront it uh, of course the good news is we have a power much, much greater than fear. And so we don't have to be afraid to confront the fear, but we do have to confront it and get honest about it if we're going to actually uh, drive it out. What does beginning to confront that fear look like? Yeah, I think it actually looks like identifying, and I, I say this uh, in the book, sort of our perspective. So even the way that we view things for so long. Um, so I use like a little uh, strategy from Amplify Peace, which is a movement that I, I do around peacemaking. 
and it's listen, learn, live. It's a really simple, I just offer this. It, it sounds so simple, but it's so much more complicated to actually, or complex to do because it, it, it makes you uh, change. You know, it really makes you at least challenge your own uh, prejudices. So your prejudice will always distort your perception. That's just a, your prejudice always distorts your perception. And so you, we see everything through a lens, everything. So if the bad guys, I mean, think about this, if all the bad guys in all the movies have been Muslim for a generation, we see every Muslim through a bad guy lens, right? That's just how culture works. That's how perception works. So until you're willing to identify where the prejudice comes from, you can never even change your perception because you don't know it exists, right? So it's like the big fish telling the little fish in the water that we're swimming by saying, how's the water today? And then the little fish swim on and say to each other, what water? Like, what's he talking? You don't know that what you're even swimming in until you actually learn enough uh, to confront your own prejudices. So I think just paying attention. So the first step is to listen. And the strategy here is to listen to voices you don't normally hear. So again, here's a great challenge. Did you even listen to any Me Too conversations? Did you even listen to the women that have been saying, have you, you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, the HSBC bank in the book. I use them as an example where they realized they were losing all of their middle management and they didn't really even realize why. And they just kept spending all this money on recruiting and retraining. And then finally one of them said, we should just go ask the old people to come back. Where are they all? And when they, when they actually looked them all up, they realized they were almost all women. They were losing all their women in middle management. And they, asked, they started to listen, call them up and say, why did you leave? What happened? Like, did we do something wrong? And then uh, they learned, that was stage number two. So first they listened to the voices they wouldn't normally hear. And I would say in churches too, like look around your leadership tables uh, in businesses, whatever, who's not there? Who's not there that is a, a, not a reflection of a community? Like, so all churches are at least 50, if not more represented by women. So if women aren't around the leadership table, you got to ask yourself, why not? Why aren't they here? Now, I've talked to so many great leaders who are like, I'm for women. Like, I want women to lead, but I can't, where are they? They're not around my leadership table. I'm like, okay, that's the question. Where are they and why aren't they there? That's, that's the starting place. That's not a condemnation place. That's the beginning of recognizing, oh, there's something going on here. My prejudice has distorted my perception somehow along this way, and I don't even know how. Uh, but then, so finding who are the women in your community, uh, business, you know, organization, church that should be there that are not there, find them and ask them why they're not there. And I guarantee you, you will find out where those pockets of prejudices is or systems or structures. Now in the HSBC, what they found is that just the way the bank was structured, the way the bank world worked in terms of the hours that they had to do, the way they had to do them, the structure of the setup, most of them were having uh, children, having babies at the time. And they just were not willing to sacrifice their parenting for these like 12 hour bank days and all this kind of stuff. So then the HSBC was like, well, I wonder if there's another way to do banking. Like, are we stuck in a structured banking system? Like it's a brave new world. Are there other ways? And they started looking to other companies to realize that, oh, there's a lot more flexibility. Like, holy cow, in this crisis, COVID-19, it turns out everybody can work from home. Who knew? But like there are all these, and they actually even put in daycare centers and some of their banking centers and things like that to help assist all the employees, not just the women. And so every, and they decided that for employees' well-being, if employees knew that they could really contribute to the benefit of the company that would contribute to the benefit of the world, and they could 
be great parents at the same time. Their like ability to work and purpose and all of the things that actually motivate employees went through the roof. So they ended up realizing that as they were addressing these issues, they were addressing them for everybody and their company just got better and better and better. So they listened first intentionally. They learned new ways and different ways of thinking and doing and you know challenging the way that they did their systems. And then the third thing is live differently. So implement, implement, implement. And as HSBC implemented these changes, their whole company's well-being went through the roof. And that goes back to the beginning of the book where if we could figure this out, we would realize that we would reach more people, motivation would be better, team would be better, the way that we interact with each other would be better, the way we're modeling the kingdom would be better. I mean, just the, this is not like charity. I'm not asking men to be nice to women because it's the right thing to do, although that's not a bad place to start. I'm just asking for us to consider the ramifications of what would happen in terms of getting the gospel out and in terms of telling people like what the kingdom looks like in terms of reconciliation and dealing with the deep needs that we want. And, and I'm just curious, whenever it comes to um, healing, and we've talked about a lot of it through the, the listen, the learn, and the live, I'm just curious, what, what other th- things does it look like for men and women to, together? Because it's going to work. For, for healing to take place, it's going to take both of us. Like it's not just going to be, you know, men or not just going to be women. It's going to be both of us working together. What does that look like? And what will it, what will it take for, for us to work together to move forward to that future that you're referring to? Yeah. I mean, it takes a miracle uh, in some respects, which thankfully we're in the business of miracles. We have yeah. the cross, right? It's going to take the yeah. cross. So right at the center of the book, there's like a map. The only way I can figure out how this, and this is, this is interesting because when I first set out to write the book, I was thinking like, I want to write this book as more of a general idea. Cause I think the idea of men and women working together is so important for the whole world. And I didn't want to kind of like leave out, you know, business leaders or whatever by making it a Jesus centered book. But in all honesty, the more research I did, the only answer we have for this deep, deep wound is an answer of reconciliation. And the only person who models reconciliation uh, in a miraculous way, like in a way that is possible for everybody around the planet is Jesus, you know? So we're recording this also during Easter week and we're coming up to the, you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is a way out of systems and structures and fatalistic, you know, all of these things like this is the way out. And it's not just the way out for people who suffer, although it is that, I mean, Jesus suffers with all of humanity who suffers. So we can take our suffering someplace and Jesus can transform the suffering into meaning and purpose. So we're not just stuck in a cycle that never, ever ends of suffering. And that's what the cross represents. But also if you're guilty, you know, if you're an offender, if you've been like part of a systemic, even just a structure or a thinking or a culture that is like, you know, oppressed people and you don't know where to go with your guilt, you know, there you head to the cross and Jesus, you know, not just dying for those who suffered, but also dying for those who also caused the suffering. And in that place, the cross and resurrection of Jesus is a reconciled future. And that's where, you know, those of us who have dealt with pain and oppression and harassment can come to get healing and hope and freedom where we no longer have to be identified as victims, but we can actually be identified as overcomers uh, and uh, people who can be set free from some of those cycles that happen in our lives. But also if you've been part of these oppressive systems and you've got guilt and shame and fear uh, and you don't know what to do. Uh, guess what? I got good news for you. I know what, I know what you can do. So there's this moment of forgiveness and healing 
and reconciliation. And then the cross means we can actually move towards a reconciled future. This is, of course, what Paul calls the gospel. He calls it the ministry of reconciliation. That's what the good news is. So if we can't do this, the church, if we can't do this, then we better stop preaching on Easter. Because this is the message of Easter, right? Is a reconciled future. Mm-hmm. One of one of the things uh, that I absolutely love that you write about is you talk about the importance of equity and what that means. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important? Yeah. So when we talk about equality, oftentimes people are like, "What are we? Why are we still talking about equality? Like we have rules, we have laws, we have like you know we have equality already uh, one sort of thing." That's not true, of course. Around the world, women are, remain the most oppressed people group on the planet. But we do in the West. So we often think like, ah, this is an old conversation. I think even women are like, yeah, 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 like that happened, like whatever. But equality and equity are different. So equality is is the right and equity is the opportunity to exercise the right. So uh, I use in the book uh, just a story of my son who really wants this electric toy for Christmas and I get him it because I'm just like, I want to give him a good thing and this is the right thing. But uh, he opens it and he's all excited, but I'm like, oh no, just put that on the shelf and we're going to look at that gift for the rest of our lives and just appreciate it, you know. And then it turns into not a gift. It turns into some sort of torture, you know, torture technique or something or terrible parent that just won't let the kid use the toy. You can just have the toy. And that's in many respects, uh, a lot of women experience this on a regular basis. You can have equality. Here you go. You just can't use it. So the table, the leadership table is still not open. You know, like all of these opportunities are still not yours, but you have this ideal of equality and there it is on the shelf. So that's the difference between equality and equity. So I try to use equity a fair bit in the book because that's what we're talking about is the actually ability to exercise equality in real life. So I'm thinking of the person who's listening and they're like, you know what? I'm, I'm not the lead person in the church. I'm not the lead person in the organization. Like, I love this idea, but I don't feel like I can do anything. Like, what would you say to that person? Yeah, I would say all of us have power. Um, so there's a section in the book on identifying your power and then using your power. And this has been a fascinating, one of the takeaways of the book for me that's been the most fascinating is the study on power. And, um, you know, I think that there, this is, you know, probably the most helpful because we've all... I think we've all uh, understood or believed that all power is corrupting. So we're afraid. And so this is a conversation even around power and privilege, you know, even when it comes to racial things or diversity in general, but gender specifically in this book I'm talking about, but it works for all of the things is we're all afraid of a conversation of privilege because we assume privilege is bad. And that's because we think that power is corrupting. And that's a quote by Lord Acton that he wrote in uh, what year? 1887. And he just said, all power is corrupting and all men with absolute power are absolutely corrupting. So he has a super cynical view of power, which I think we've actually inherited. We believe that too, because we just keep seeing people use their power so terribly. But I had this revelation in uh, power where Jesus has all power. Like Jesus is all powerful. He's the most powerful. Like he is the most powerful one on the planet. He is, And he even says, like, do you not think I could you know, release legions of angels and like, you know, like he's got all power, but he's not corrupted. He's not corrupted by it. So then I had to ask this question. Okay. So how do I, what, like, what is Jesus doing that everybody else is not doing? And I think the first thing Jesus does is he knows he has power. He identifies his power. So he's not afraid of this. 
So in the book, there's this uh, wheel of privilege that, I, uh, that I've used in, in leadership training exercises. It's really fascinating in one of these where um, I just have people like color in. So it's a Western grid of power. So you just color in the shade of you are. There's this kind of grid about like who has the most power and what kind of power that you have. And it's been fascinating as people fill in this exercise because they're like, whoa, like one lady at the back. I did this with a room full of youth uh, leaders. And one lady was like, whoa, I'm shocked. I, I was told my whole life because I'm a female, I don't have any power. But it turns out, according to this, I have quite a lot of power. And it was like, okay, good. That's, that's actually really good. Identify the power. And then you start asking, like, how do I use this power? What's this power for? There was a guy at the front, and this was fascinating to me. This is I, probably why this study has been so interesting. Uh, a guy at the front who was crying. And I said to him, what's going on for you? Why are you crying? And he just said, he I held this like exercise and he just was crying and he was saying, I have all the power, I have all the power, I have all the power. And I'm like, okay, so, but I don't understand. How is this, how are you crying? And he said to me, well, I feel bad. Like I shouldn't have all the power. Like I feel like, ah, like if I have the power then someone else doesn't have the power, you know, like, and there's just all this guilt and shame and like realizing that you have so much power. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, we have a really terrible view of power if we think having it is bad. So then we have this question about like, then what do we do with the power that we hold? So first identifying that we have the power and then two, what do we do with this power? And there are three kind of corrupting views of power, what I call corrupting views of power, which I just, I think are so, this was so mind blowing to me and so helpful to me in my own life. Power is corrupting if you think it's limited. So realize that the power that you have is unlimited. You have access. So even though structurally it's limited, like you might not be the boss, the power that you actually have is an unlimited resources from heaven, right? The kingdom power that we're talking about for change and transformation. That's not hierarchical. That's not positional. Otherwise, Pilate would have had the power. And do you remember when Jesus got, came before Pilate and Pilate's like, you better talk to me because I've got power. And Jesus, you can almost hear him laughing like, oh, that's funny. You think you have the power. I would say the same is true in all kingdom leadership. The structure of the church is not the power structure of the kingdom. So realize that you have unlimited power too. Power is corrupting if you view it as a means to control people or events. So real power, kingdom power is empowering, not controlling. So what I suggest people do is start identifying the power they use and then actually start giving it away. This is literally what Jesus does Power is corrupting. Another force of power corruption is if you think it's yours, if you think you own it. You do not. It's a gift. Power is a gift to be stewarded. So if you realize, if you hold all the privilege that you do have, instead of waiting for the ultimate privilege of positional authority, if you take all the power that you do have, you identify it, and then you start giving it away. Create access points for other people to come in. Model this. Let's just say, like, you're a youth leader at your church. Change the way your youth ministry works so that equity is at the heart, this kingdom value of equity, of shared mutual leadership and flourishing. Figure out a way to do that. Start using these practices and the power that you do hold. And I, I have a couple of other things I, I want to ask you about but before we move away from the book. Is there anything else about the book uh, that we haven't covered that you want to talk about? Uh, you know what? I, you know, I just encourage people if they, if they think it might be helpful just to grab it and have a read through. I mean, I think there's so many things in this book that are helpful for men and women relating to each other. But I also think there's just some real paradigm shifts for how we lead as kingdom people and what the church's role and potential is in the times in which we're living. Um, so that's it. I mean, the, the final chapter of the book is a chapter on hope. 
Yeah. Uh, and just to stay hopeful in this. And again, the more you get bogged down sometimes in these things, the less hopeful you get, you get despairing. But I actually think hope is an eternal currency for change. So I want to be a hopeful person. I hope that's coming across. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. And then uh, actually, before we move on to that, you know, we talked about seeing, seeing the future and how that can provide hope. Is there anything else that, especially in the time that we're in right now, that helps you hold on to help hope whenever it would be much easier to let go? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the principles in this book have been so helpful to me just practically in my own life in terms of uh, change, like the listen, learn and live and even not even like outside, but even inside, like, am I listening to voices I don't normally hear on the inside? Like, like, you know, is my and this, of course, is a real fight because of the way algorithms work in social media, even is that we just keep feeding ourselves voices that we like. And we never force ourselves to actually read. So I'll often challenge people, like when it comes to women and men, I'll often challenge male leaders, you know, talk to me about the female theologians that you're reading. Uh, how's that going, you know? <laughs> and then when they actually have a look at their bookshelf, they'll just see white man, mostly, just like all the way along. And this is a good exercise for everybody. Just go ahead, like have a look at your books, like who's influencing you. And you'll see like, it's almost the same voice every single time that you're listening to. And it's just cementing already normal cultural uh, worldviews and things. So just even as we're like sequestered inside and everybody's stuck, I'll even still challenge people. Like, what are you listening to? Like, what are you reading right now? Like, what are the voices that you're listening to? Even just to challenge you, maybe not even to shape you, but maybe just to challenge you so that you're, um, you're listening in a way that's not defensive and you're not using fear as a lens by which you view the world. Yeah. And then I, I echo that. That's something that really challenged me a couple of years ago. Like I was just looking through my podcast feed of the podcast that I listened to in the books and it's like, wow, they're like all the same type of person. And whenever that happens, it's yeah. just what you were saying. Like you limit yourself to what you know, whenever you like limit yourself to the type of people that you're listening to. Yeah, and diversity, and this is such a fascinating, I mean, this is so beautiful in the scripture, but diversity is a strength. I mean, literally the definition, like to be human means to be different. Mm -hmm. Everybody's created different. And so think about it. I mean, it's a miracle. Everyone's created different. I have three boys and none of them are the same. And you're just like, how is that possible? They were raised in the same cultural environment. Like they come from the same people. Like, I don't get it. Like, how can they be so different? And their tastes are different. Their personalities are different there. And difference is at the heart of humanity. And if we view difference through a lens of fear, we're always going to like attract to sameness. But if we view difference through the lens of faith, we're going to see it as opportunity. So diversity or difference is opportunity to grow and to, to become better together in all spheres. So I would say those are just some simple uh, strategies to start thinking about like, who are you listening to and to start listening more critically. Now, I do have a couple of questions that I'm curious and like what what stories or passages in scripture are challenging you right now? Yeah, well, I'm preparing an Easter uh, message uh, for Sunday. So I'll be speaking at uh, the meeting house this Sunday in Toronto via my garage. Uh, but, um, you know, so I've just been camped out in the Easter story uh, these days, you know, during Lent, especially just kind of traveling with Jesus through the events of his life. And I think for me, this, you know, this idea, this has been a real shocker in, in Colossians 1, 21, 22, sort of my life verses. It says, once I was alienated from God and I was an enemy in my own mind because of my evil behavior, but now Christ has reconciled me through his physical death on the cross to present me holy and without blemish and free from accusation. I've, I've, I've learned that. Obviously I know it by root and I've, 
I've, I've said it and prayed it and loved it my whole life. And then just a couple like months ago, well, a year ago, probably when I was writing this book, I realized that the line said, once I was an enemy of God in my own mind. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was an enemy of God in my own mind. That uh, and I realized this incredible, it was so mind blowing to me, even though I think I might have like intuitively known this and maybe I had heard it before, but like for the you know, for that moment in my life, this like deep penny dropped. I was never an enemy of God, God has no human enemies, He is for us, even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, there is no animosity on God's end towards us. The enemy that like I'm different from, I'm other than, that's all fear-based, it's all sin-based, and it's all in our own minds. And if you think about the ramifications of that, you know, with Galatians uh, chapter five, where, you, you know, Paul the apostle says like, now there is no longer these divisions. There's no longer race, racial divisions. There's no longer gender divisions. Like there's no longer like tribal divisions. Like there's no longer religious divisions. Like all of those have been destroyed in Jesus. And you just think about that. You're just like, what on? Or so even the people we think we're enemies with, there are no human enemies. And again, you know, there are principalities, there's powers, there's systems, there's structures. Like there's the devil who hates me and I hate him. And like, so like there's all that. I get it. There's enemies, but there's not human enemies. All humans uh, are not enemies and of not enemies of God and not enemies of each other. And I think that revelation could maybe change everything for everyone, but certainly it's been challenging for me. Yeah. And then finally, what else have you been learning recently? Yeah. I, I mean, how long is this podcast? <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like I'm just, I try to live a curious life. Uh, and so I just, I keep trying to learn every day. Like I keep trying to learn new things. So recently, of course, my homeschooling skills have been needing to be sharpened. <laughs> and then even just like, what does it look like to stay put? Because I've only ever been active and travel and busy. It's like part of my, I'm an activist, so I like to do things. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, COVID-19 in our household and I've had it myself. And so I can't be, I literally am sequestered. Like I have to stay away from people, which is the opposite of my personality. Yeah. So I'm on such a steep learning curve uh, these days, what to do with guilt, uh, how to minister and serve from a distance, you know, all of those things which so many people are dealing with right now. But so I'm in a sharp learning curve on so many levels, you know, just even domestic skills, you know, like, ah, cooking every day. I mean, I have just not done that for a long time. So, uh, so many uh, learning curves for me. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about, you know, be, being an activist in a time to, of social distancing, what are you learning right now about that? Yeah, I'm learning that love looks like specific things in specific circumstances. So I think sometimes we're so prone to this as humans that we kind of take a recipe and then we apply it to every single situation. And uh, I think that, you know, Jesus is so beautiful at this, doesn't he? He's never heals the same way twice. You know, he's always creative and always doing the thing that needs to be done in the specific circumstance that needs to be done in. So I feel like these are really special circumstances. And uh, so I'm learning what love looks like in these circumstances so that love looks like keeping other people safe, like love looks like uh, staying in, but love also looks like asking people how I can serve right now, how I can serve them instead of like, here's an idea. It's just really, again, just like taking a piece of my own medicine, you know, like practicing what I preach and saying like, is, are there ways I can pray for you? I can stay connected with you. Uh, can I record something that's useful for you to use? Like, what are the things that I can do that can serve? 
But just paying attention to what love looks like in these days, I think is, and every day, I guess this is the lesson we'll be taking is not to be driven by fear, but, but by love. And what does that look like today? Yeah. And I think that's a good place to wrap up. Danielle, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Highly recommend people check out the book Better Together. It's a great read as well. If people want to continue to just follow you or learn from you and even get the book, where's the best place for them to go to do those things? Yeah, daniellestrickland.com. That's the best, daniellestrickland.com. Uh, and everything will be there from uh, to, go, to get to. All the links are there and, and con- on contacts. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. Great talking to you. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I'm super grateful um, for all of the work that you're doing. Super grateful for this book that you've released and really just for for making the decision to continue to invest in people and to love people well. So thank you for doing that. Be on the lookout for the rest of this week as we'll be dropping some more uh, episodes throughout the week. The best way to make sure you don't miss any of those episodes is by subscribing. Or if you're on Spotify, hit that follow button as well. Also, if you have any audio or video needs, hit up my friend Sam Massey. He would love uh, to potentially work with you on some of that stuff. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. My name is Kayla Mason. And until next time, stay safe and keep learning and keep growing.